Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. I'm your host for today, Mike Carter. You can find me on Twitter or X, whatever they're calling it now, at MDRC0508, the worst Twitter handle in the business. I'm also joined here by my co-host, the always ready, the always fresh looking Christopher Torres. Torres, how are you doing today? Doing good, man. Uh, Looking forward to this episode. I know this is going to be like a therapy session for you, I'm assuming, because uh, you've talked quite a bit about this White Sox team and uh, we're going to get into it today and, and give you an opportunity to to really let your feelings out uh, about this team. So, uh, yeah, let's let's get right to it. Chris, I will tell you just in, in response to that, I have come to a clearing in the woods. I'm OK. Um, I'm, Are you I've na- okay? Yes, I think so. I, I think I navigated it pretty well. The hardest part of this thing was explaining trade deadline to a 12 year old, you know, who who loves some of these guys and can't understand why they might not fit into the socks. But anyway, without further ado, let's introduce our guest. We have with us the uh, effervescent, wonderful Scott Merkin from MLB.com. And Scott has been covering the White Sox uh, as long as I can remember. I think 21 years, Scott, is that right, yeah, that you've 21. been covering the White Sox? Yeah. Uh, he's a lover of all things the uh, Eagles, not the Philadelphia Eagles, but the band, the Eagles, who are going back on tour. There uh, we go. This- this fall and winter, and I'm sure Scott will be there to see them. Uh, Scott, how are you doing today? Busy, busy trade deadline for you the last couple of days. Yeah, I just want to tell people who are watching that an example of how I'm on all the time is I just did about five minutes with you guys, not even realizing we weren't even, not even, not even going yet. So if you can find the lost tapes there, some good stuff for me going on there, but otherwise <laughs> doing, doing fine. That's awesome. So Scott, we wanted to ask you some questions about the Chicago White Sox. Obviously, the season, the last two seasons, honestly, have not gone as well as expected. Last year, there were a lot of high hopes for the team. They finished at 500. This year, they're stuck at 43 and 65 as of this morning, fresh off of another shutout in Texas last night where they didn't score any runs and they struck out 16 times. In your estimation, what went wrong here? I know that there's probably a lot of things you could say, but where do you think things kind of went off the rails for the White Sox? You know, I think the biggest thing I've seen on the White Sox over the years is the White Sox are really good at um, identifying talent, identifying really talented ball players. Luis Robert, Yoan Moncada, Tim Anderson, Eloy Jimenez, you know, Andrew Vaughn, Lance Lynn, whatever, Lucas Giulio, the list goes on and on. They don't seem to be great at building a team. And that's the key things. These, you know, in this day of analytics and there are great numbers out there and there are great numbers to, to research and use to get better, to understand team better. I understand that, but there's still something to be said about chemistry and how a team fits together. And these teams that win for the most part, they fit together, you know, and for whatever reason, and I've talked to the guys in charge, you know, Kenny and Rick about this. They, they just don't seem to do a good job of building one whole unit that works together for success. I, I mean, I'll tell you last year was. As bad a year as I can remember to cover. Now it was unfortunately, you know, and it sounds like Tony is doing better, which is great, great news. He was sick during the year. He was, you know, under doing dealing with some physical challenges, but it was bad. And people will say, well, they lost a hundred games one year. They were 72 and 90 two years after they won the World Series. But this was a team last year that came in with expectations and it just was a, a, a 
a nondescript season. They were never below five under. They were never above five over. And they just stayed in long and they stayed close enough until the collapse at the end to make people think they could do it, you know, and they never did. This year is even worse. You know, I mean, this year they were just a bad team and it went from the beginning. You know, obviously they had some things that only in the context of baseball, for example, missing your all-star closer who might be, you know, the best closer in baseball hurts you. Now, granted, Liam is the best story in baseball this year that he's come back and beat cancer and he's using his experience and helping others. It's just an amazing, he's an amazing, it's an amazing couple, him and his wife, Christy, amazing person, amazing story. In the context of baseball, they missed him. You know, they had injuries, they had underperformance, and it's tough to come back when you start seven and 21 if you're not a great overall team. So yeah, injuries are a factor. They're a factor for everyone though, right? I mean, look at the Cleveland Guardians. They're missing, well, they traded Savali, but they've dealt with injuries to McKenzie, Bieber, and Quantrill, who were keys to them being a division winner last year. And they're still hanging in there. So you can't use that as a crutch. You can't say guys are hurt. And if guys are hurt, you know, if guys are hurt three out of four years, as some of the Sox players have been, you're not saying anything against them, but they're injury prone. That's just the definition of injury prone. I'm a big complainer. If I complain three straight days, doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Eh, maybe some people disagree. But <laughs> you're prone to complaining, right? That's just the definition of what prone is if you get hurt three straight years. So that's an issue. But I, again, I just don't think the, you know, the sum of the parts is not as big, is not as good as the individual talent for the White Sox. And that's been that way for a lot of times that I've covered them for whatever reason. Yeah, Scott, you talked about the injuries, and that is something that's really perplexing with this team. I mean, I understand maybe some of these players are injury prone, but it also makes me think, is there something uh, in terms of the organization that they're just not preparing these players the right way, the training staff? I, I wonder if you have any insight into what might be going wrong there. No, I don't think it's that. I mean, these guys are professionals. These guys work hard. They, they have a plan for these guys. These are plans. Actually, they I mean, look at Aloy. Aloy busted his butt in this offseason to get into shape because he did not want to be. He's expressed this in, in very colorful terms that he does not want to be a DH full time at this point in his career or probably ever in his career. So he worked hard to get into physical condition to get ready for, you know, to play the outfield this year. And he was in the best shape I've seen him since I've covered him. And he got hurt a couple of times. You know, it just, it just, some guys are just prone that way for whatever reason. I, I don't think it's not like, you know, they do the proper work. They do the proper preparation. It's there. It's just for whatever reason. And sometimes one injury leads to another. I mean, you give a guy like Desmondi Grandel, who's an outstanding catcher, one of the four catchers currently going who's caught 8,000 innings in his career. So obviously very durable, right? It's him, Maldonado, Real Muto, and Salvador Perez. All pretty good names in there. And, you know, he started having injury issues a couple of years ago, and it's just kind of added up. And again, to his credit, he went on this intense regimen that he talked about. I did not see it, but, you know, with the Blackhawks conditioning coach in this offseason, got himself ready and still has been bothered here and there by little injuries. You know, so it's just a little bit of everything. You know, we've all, we all deal with, I'm, you know, older, we all deal with wear and tear that no matter what you do, there's certain things you can do to help it, but I don't think there's anything you can do to prevent it. I think that's just too simple to say, well, this training staff isn't as good as that training staff because injuries are happening. They just, you know, they just happen. So, I mean, a couple of years ago, Robert, Moncada, Madrigal, um, last year, Aloy got hurt running to first base, right? So, I mean, right, I don't right. think there's a different way you teach guys to run to first base that can prevent those injuries. 
Yeah, I'm glad that you said that because I think that there's a lot of fans, especially in Chicago, who feel like these guys are quote unquote soft, whatever that means to them, and that they don't play through injury. But you know, when you're a school teacher like me and you have a pulled hamstring, you can still work. You can't do that when you're playing baseball at a competitive level. So I think it's a really important thing to delineate. Um, soft to me is like the dumbest word ever because right. these guys are pro athletes who are doing hours of work just to get ready. You know, they do a couple hours of work to get ready to go out and play for two hours, two and a half hours. It used to be three hours, but now at the pitch time, we're not as much. But I just don't believe, I don't buy the word soft. I, I think, you know, it's, like I said, if you want to say injury prone, um, I, I just, it, there's too many, you know, these are people too. So they go through real day problems like we all do, only we don't have to, for the most part, when we're done dealing with the problem or the problem we're not done and the problem's on our mind, we don't have to go play and hit a 97 mile an hour fastball in front of a national TV audience for, you know, two and a half hours. So I'm not making excuses. They've had a bad year. It's a bad team. I mean, I'm not breaking any news here. They're 43 and 65 and they've earned every bit of that record. They're not a good baseball team, but sure. soft just never made sense to me. Never understood I, that term. I agree with you. So over the course of the last week, Scott, the Sox have made uh, quite a few moves, uh, moving, you know, five pitchers here in the last five or six days. Uh, and getting some prospects back in return. You wrote a really nice piece yesterday on one of the guys that the Sox got back in the Kendall Graveman trade, which was Corey Lee. When do you think these guys are going to, you know, come in and make a, their presence felt on the White Sox? I mean, obviously, we talked a little bit off air that the Sox are kind of viewing this as a retooling as opposed to a restructuring. Where do you, when do you think we might be able to start seeing some of those guys that came back in those trades? I think they'd like to get a look at Corey Lee this year. You know, Corey, I, I was mistaken today when he was just on a Zoom with a bunch of the other writers and myself, and I thought he was back in the lineup last night. I should have looked closer at the box score. My bad. He was not back, but he's ready to go. He was in the Sugarland lineup, so he told me Friday and then got scratched, obviously, because you're not going to let a guy who you just trained him play for you at that point. I think it's really going right. that. But so he, um, I think, you know, he's back from an oblique. He missed a month, I want to say. It happened, like, right before July 4th. So, you know, you got to give them a little time to work down there. It's almost kind of like an injury rehab without being an injury rehab. But I think he'll be up here, what's today, August 2nd, by mid-August and play out the rest of the year as the team catcher. You got to see what you have there, right? So, right. you know, I think the rest of the guys are, you know, targeted later in 24 for the most part, if not 25 and beyond, like the young catcher they got in the Lucas Giolito trade and Renato Lopez trade too. But I think Lee would be the one who would be most likely to be up here you know, sooner than later. Makes a lot of sense for them, especially with um, the potential of losing Yasmani Grandal at the end yeah, of the year I mean, free is, agency. This is the last fought. year of, yeah. Last year of his four-year $73 million deal. So, yeah, you want to get a look and see. I mean, you have Zavala. You have Carlos Perez. Adam Hackenberg's a nice project. Uh, project, sorry. Bad choice of word. Prospect who's playing now for Charlotte. So you have some guys down there, and Corey Lee is not part, not part of that mix. And, you know, I think Grandal knows and the Sox know this is his last year with the White Sox. So you got to, it's a key position to have. So you got to know what you have going into whatever you're going to be doing 24 and beyond. Scott, were you surprised by any of the moves that either the White Sox did make or didn't make yesterday? I, I was a little surprised by the burger move. And I have to admit that I'm, you know, maybe you're not, you're supposed to be ejected, but you're a little partial to guys who are good talkers, a lot of energy and, I think there's something to be said for having, and I'm not taking anything away from anyone else on that roster, but he's a guy who just kind of has that it factor. 
And I get that you don't want to build a roster with 26 guys who have an it factor and aren't very good. You're not going to win a lot of games. But Jake has game-changing power in a lineup that has not shown a lot of that this year. Luis Robert has been, you know, on a better team would be an MVP candidate, right? Well, I mean, a second MVP candidate because (laughs) Shohei Otani is the MVP. That's pretty much a given, right? But he'd be right there in the next tier behind anyone who's human on the baseball field. And they really don't have much home run power, consistent home run power besides those two. And Jake's had some big hits this year. Has Jake hit, you know, 175 over the last whatever stretch? Yes. Is he, is he hitting 202 overall and swings at a lot of pitches? Absolutely. I don't, I don't know the exact average, but it's in that range. You know, um, did he walk a little more in July? He did. He was one of the team leaders in walks in July. But here's the biggest thing. People talk about Andrew Vaughn, another great kid, great talent. They talk about he was hampered by the fact that he was playing a bunch of different positions, right? Out of position. He was drafted as a first baseman. They played him at third. They played him at second. They played him, you know, on the outfield because Aloy got hurt. But they did the same with Jake, right? I mean, Jake was drafted as a third baseman, had the three-year absence because of the injuries. They told him this offseason to work at first because they thought he was going to go to first. They told him, and then they put him at second base, you know, during the year. Now, again, that might have been for other teams to get a look at what he could do. I understand they're trading from a position of quote unquote power with right handed. You know, they're not, they're more right handed in that lineup than left handed. I understand that they got a really good, from everyone I've talked to, really good pitching prospect and Jake Eater in return. I, I, this is not about him at all because I don't know enough about him. But from what everyone's told me is he was just behind Garcia with the Marlins in terms of, prospects so again prospects are a little bit of a crapshoot you know you can be the number one prospect and not materialize you can be the number 25 i mean Declan cronin was a 36 round draft pick and he's not pitching in the majors but again i i didn't totally get the whole burger move because i think a guy who's invested in the organization a guy who the fan base is invested in and a guy who can play most of all and i think is just starting to tap his potential just a quick example you know he was not a good third baseman last year i mean bordering on pretty bad and really he worked bad. hard at that he got the job when Moncada got hurt and you know was he Brooks Robinson absolutely not but was he pretty good this year at third yeah he did a nice job at third base when he was out there there were no there were no plays where you're like oh my god what's going on out there you were like man he's making some nice plays out there so I didn't totally understand it I did get that you know there's a surplus they got a great left-handed pitcher but to me that's a guy that you keep and move forward with whatever you're doing but they didn't consult me, so there you go. <laughs> and I think the worst part is that you lose all the burger puns, right? Like those headline exactly. writers must have exactly. that. That's right. Like, it was so easy. Grand uh, slam yeah. walk off, smash burger, you know, right, right. home runs, double burger, you know, it's it's you know, it's 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 it. And then yeah, you know, I think he was another one who with Andrus, and this is a minor, minor thing, but came up with the kind of mob coat and hat for the home run celebration. And again, it's all part of what makes a good team. You know, it'd be right. great if it was easy enough just to say, let's put every great player in every position and you're going to win a championship. Well, you know, small sample size, but the Mets tried that and didn't win a playoff series. Right. So there is no guarantee, which is why you have to build the best fit team overall. And it doesn't necessarily mean having the highest paid best talent in every position. Well, that is really true. Scott, um, one of the questions that we kind of are left with here as the, the White Sox have traded. of their starting rotation away here in the last week with Giolito and Lynn disappearing. Who's going to eat innings for this team the rest of the way? I know Jesse Schulten started the other night. 
I know that they also picked up Luis Patino from the Tampa Bay Rays yesterday. Who do you see uh, slotting into these spots here the rest of the way? Well, I think so. Overall, they traded what they traded: um, Giolito, Lopez, Kelly, Lynn, and Graveman, Graveman and Kendall Middleton. Yes, Keenan, I'm sorry, Keenan Middleton yesterday. So six guys out of their staff, which is a sizable chunk, and Jake Berger. So right now the rotation is Dylan Cease, who's going today as we tape this. Uh, Michael Kopech, who is you know a big final couple months to kind of move towards one of the guys who's going to be at the front of the rotation probably next year. And then you have Schultons and Tucson. So really you have one spot to fill the rest of the way. You have Tanner Banks, who's done that. Tanner Banks is an interesting case because he's done nothing but pitch pretty decently in the chances he's got from a guy who no one really expected to be there and kind of gets overlooked. But I think he doesn't get overlooked as much as you know you can use him like Schultons in so many different ways. You know, so I, I think that's the thing with Tanner. But he's in the mix. You know, I mean, he can pitch a lot. You can go with some openers here and there. And like you said, Patino is down in the minors. He was pitching in relief for Durham when they got him and not having a real good run of it. But this is a chance. You know, it's two months, so we'll see who else. They they have another arm to call up and replace a Middleton. So, you know, we'll see what they what they do with everything. But they're pretty set with, I think, four guys going forward in terms of the rest of the year, at least. Mm-hmm. Cease, Kopech, Toussaint, Scholten. But assuming Cease is still there to start the year, who is beyond that? going, you know, for, for 24. That's going to be a key question, especially if they have any hope in contending. All right. Well, I know you got to get out of here in a minute, Scott, but I just got one very quick question for you. Fantasy players want to know, uh, is Gregory Santos the uh, definite closer moving forward? Yeah, I I don't know what Liam's situation is in terms of coming back. And I mean, I, I mean, I know he's on the IL. I know he's working. I know he's, you know, played catch, thrown some, you know, thrown off the mound, but we're not certain at this point how close he is to coming back. So for the foreseeable future, unless, you know, Liam does come back, Gregory Santos is the closer. And he's been, we've talked a lot about the negative stuff. He's been along with Berger, along with Liam coming back from cancer, beating cancer, which is the best story overall. But Santos on the field has been one of the great stories this year. Ethan Katz, Kurt Hassler, the White Sox overall have done a really good job with him. And he's a guy, you know, that's now part of your mix moving forward. So I agree with Pedro that I think it's going to be very interesting to see. And it, it, it's an easier challenge. It's easier to go with this challenge because you're letting him close for a team that's 22 under. So let's say he converts five straight and then has a game where he gives up four runs. Okay, so be it. You learn from it. And not necessarily saying he's going to be the closer. Liam should be back next year, at least how it stands right now. But if he is, you learn from that experience going into next year. Very kind of unaffected low-key kid he's, he's interesting to talk to um you know it, it's very it, i i think he would fit well in that role or for sure late inning leverage if he's not the closer but for now yes if you want saves from the white Sox, it's gregory santos very cool well, we've been here with scott merkin for about the last 20 minutes he's m- currently melting in a hotel room down in arlington no, no, texas <laughs> the air conditioning said it's 60 so i'm doing oh great. my doing gosh great. Yeah, last time we talked to Scott in the wintertime, he was fighting through flu, flu-like symptoms and a really bad cold. So, Scott, we're really grateful that you were able to be back on with us today. Thanks so much for making time in the middle of all the busy stuff you got going on. Can you tell our listeners where they can find your work and any large pieces that you have coming out here in the near future? Sure. Uh, at chysocks.com, at MLB.com, and at Scott Merkin on Twitter. Oh, it's going to be Twitter for me. And... uh <laughs> You know, just working on probably just following up the the draft stuff. And I mean, I'm sorry, not the draft. The draft is a while ago. The, the trade deadline, 
some of the younger guys they have. So, you know, we'll be focusing on that moving forward. Scott, thanks again so much for your time. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you again here somewhere down the line here, probably after the season is over and get an update on how things are going with my beloved Chicago White Sox. Thanks again for your time. We really appreciate you. Anytime, guys. No problem. Okay, welcome back to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. We just had Scott Merkin, who covers the White Sox for MLB.com, on with us. And I'm feeling okay. I'm feeling okay about w- what the White Sox did. I I was hoping that they would move Dylan Cease and 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 get something really good back for him. But I understand also why they, why they didn't do that. And Scott made really good points as to why the White Sox held on to Dylan Cease. But I'm back here with Chris Torres and... Uh, Torres is a, a lifelong Yankees fan, and the Yankees are, to put it nicely, struggling a little bit here over the last few weeks. Chris, I wanted to ask you while we're here, what are what are your big takeaways from the trade deadline yesterday? What what are some things that you are ruminating on as we sit here a day after? Well, ruminating on, um, yeah, rumination is the right word because um, honestly. After yesterday, I am just so disgusted with this team. And, and I don't want to make this too long. People who listen to the podcast know how I feel about the direction of, of the Yankees right now. Um, but what they did yesterday was just completely incompetent, inexcusable. I, I mean, you either at, I understand like they don't have a lot of options at this point, but you've either got to make a decision. You're going to use the resources that you have to try to make a run at the playoffs, or you decide to retool, kind of like what the White Sox did, right? Like take the pieces you do have that have some value, get some prospects and, and, and see what happens. You can't sit in the middle and do nothing. That is the absolute worst thing that you could do. Uh, you look just completely like Cashman looked like a bumbling fool yesterday trying to explain what they did. And why they did it, or rather, what they didn't do. Um, I mean, this this organization. I, I think we're looking at some pretty dark days ahead because the farm system is depleted. There's really no. I, I know they've got a couple guys, Dominguez, Pereira, but there's really not much there. And let's be honest, the Yankees haven't been able to develop talent anyway, right? Like even these guys that have come up through the system that have been good prospects haven't really turned out to to be what they thought they would be. So um, I'm just completely disgusted. It, You know, just take away even my fandom. I mean, that's that's part of it. But it's more like just looking at the incompetence and lack of accountability within this organization, which is the most frustrating part. It's like, you know, if I, to use an analogy, like it, it's a kid who's born with a silver spoon, right? They're born into wealth, uh, good parents, everything, and they completely squander it. Right. They end up like a like a deadbeat. And that's kind of how I feel like the Yankees are. They've got all the resources in the world, but they're not they're not taking advantage of that. So sitting here very frustrated uh, with the lack of Yankees in action. Um, You know, if I was a Mets fan, another takeaway that I have from the deadline is that the Mets, I think, did the right thing. Right. They took some of these aging veterans. They restocked the farm system. Uh, it sounds like they got some some high end prospects for those guys. So um, I, I think that was the right move. Um, and it's it's good to see, you know, teams making moves like the Orioles, you know, um, or or the the Phillies. Like they, there were some interesting moves at the deadline. So 
Um, what about you, Mike? Any any big takeaways from the deadline? I like what you said about the Mets because I think everybody would like to have an owner like Steve Cohen, right? If you were a fan, guy ate a hundred million dollars in the last mm-hmm. four days to be able to move two aging veterans that don't have the same stuff that they had five years ago and turn them into prospects. He's a commodities guy, right? So he's looking mm-hmm. at players as commodities. He didn't care about the money, which I, I know that's a lot of money to not care about, but I, I thought that was an interesting thing. I think my biggest takeaway yesterday was. Uh, how many teams really seem to think by the moves that they made that they're in it? And mm-hmm. I don't ever remember a year, and maybe I'm wrong. Uh, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little hazy. I'm going to be 50 years old this weekend. So my brain's a little bit, uh, you know, tired and, and worn out, I guess, in some ways. I don't remember a, a year where so many teams that were hovering about 500 decided that they were all in. The Padres have decided that they're in. Now, granted, they have a superstar studded roster and they have to probably decide to be in. But the Marlins are 57 and 51. They decided that they're in. They made some pretty big moves yesterday to, to, you know, acclimate their ball club. Um, Arizona made moves to get themselves a little bit stronger. Uh, getting Paul Seawald was a really nice move for them, I thought. Um, teams like Milwaukee that you thought were going to add did add a little bit, but there's just a lot of those teams that are kind of in the middle of the, the pack that just decided to. Yeah, you know, we're going to move some things. That being said, you know, Verlander was probably the biggest name that moved yesterday, right? So there weren't a lot of superstars that changed teams, but there were some really quality players yesterday that are moving on to uh, different pastures to be able to ply their trade. So I found that to be interesting. I I was on the edge of my seat thinking that the White Sox were going to trade Dylan Seas just because, you know, a a team that's in contention, I thought Baltimore would have been a great fit. They really needed another, uh, another arm. They ended up getting Flaherty, which is fine. But, you know, a guy like Cease would have made a lot of sense for them, um, depending on what was being asked for, because they would have him for three postseason runs. This is a team that's young and on the come and looking like they're going to be really good. This might not be the year that they can win it all, but they're looking like they could be a team to really be a pain in the ass for the next uh, three or four seasons. So I was a little surprised by that. But overall, I don't really have any problem with the direction that the White Sox went in. I understand how you feel as a Yankees fan. The Yankees. Yankees have, they seem to have the resources that you just can't get by when Billy McKinney and Willie Calhoun are options on your bench. And, you know, like IKF is batting sixth and playing left field, like you said. You're just not going to be in contention if you're going to do that. And those are all fine players. I don't mean anything against them personally or professionally, but on a team that's got playoff aspirations, those guys can't be playing three and four times a week. So, sure. yeah, that was that was my take. Um Chris, any recent uh, takeaways in the fantasy landscape that you wanted to kind of comment on here? So this is going a little bit of a of a different direction. Um, but, you know, I, I think about like I think way too much about this game. And, and sometimes I maybe think a little bit too deeply about things. But there's one thing that I find is not discussed uh, very often in terms of evaluating player performance. And when we're talking fantasy or betting, Um is looking at how player travel impacts performance. Um, I don't know if you saw, I put out a tweet the other day and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it was actually in reference to you Darvish had a start against the pirates at home and everybody was like, you Darvish gave up. Yeah. I don't know. He gave up like six, seven runs and it was obviously, uh, an easy matchup on paper and people were like, how could that happen? And, you know, it got me thinking that we really don't think about like, like these guys that go on 
you know, or these teams rather that go on like a 10 game road trip. Um, I never really hear anybody talk about like, Hey, that might have an impact on, on how they perform, uh, either during the road trip or immediately after, right? Like these are human beings that, you know, the travel going from the West coast to the East coast, just think about it like intuitively or think about your own experience, right? Like if you're on, uh, I know for me, I've only done it a few times, but to go to a different time zone, like I'm all screwed up for a little bit, you know, like your sleep is screwed up. You you just, you don't feel a hundred percent for a little while as you make that adjustment. And I feel like we don't really consider that. So like with the Darvish example, I was like, yo, they were just, they went to like, I think it was Atlanta, then Toronto, and then somewhere in the central. And then they come back home without an off day. And then they, they go and play. Like, think about the adjustment that a player has to make, um, you know, because of that travel. So that's personally something that I incorporate into my process. Like if I'm looking at, you know, a, uh, whether to start somebody, that's something I'll consider. Am I going to weight that like super heavy? No. Um, and there are some players that there's a threshold, like, I don't care if Garrett Cole was just on a red eye from Australia. Like I'm starting him no matter what, right? Like there's certain players, like I don't care. Absolutely. We're talking about players maybe in like that middle tier or who are questionable. Like that is one thing on the edges that I will consider. And this is purely anecdotal just from my own like experience playing the game, but I do feel that there's something there. So I actually like at some point want to study this or, or look into, I'm going to ask Eno Saris because he's the type of guy that like, you know, he asks questions like this or, you know, knows how to research stuff like that. Uh, but I do, I really think there's something there and we, we don't, I, I never, I don't know about you, but I never hear anybody talk about that. No, they don't talk about it enough. And I think Scott really uh, alluded to it in the earlier part of this podcast, right? Where he was talking about players being human beings and yeah. some of the off the field things that they would have to do, you know, um, I follow a few people on Twitter that are, are former baseball players, uh, Jacob Turner being one of them, who now is a financial manager um, and helping people learn how to manage their money. But he talked about that, too. Like, you know, the idea of, hey, you get traded and your whole world is uprooted. You have to pack up your apartment. You have to find another apartment to live in in the next town that you're going to. You might have to uproot family or you might have to decide if the family is going to stay there and finish the school year and then come down and join you. You, there's all these other things that the public, I think, doesn't really pay attention to. And I, I think as a, a special ed teacher and, and having a high level of empathy towards people who are going through a massive amount of changes, like I see in my students all the time, you, it's a, it's a piece that we really need to strongly consider when we're looking at our fantasy players and, you know, wondering why a guy is slumping, you know, what, what, what's going on? You know, the White Sox a couple of years ago, uh, acquired Craig, Craig Crimble, Crimble, Kimbrel, Craig Kimbrel. There was a, a Cubs fan that got a crumble jersey. That's what I was thinking. He spelled the name wrong on the back of the jersey. I saw him in person. Crumbling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, while, yeah. Craig, Crimble, Craig Kimbrell was going through a really rough family time when the Sox acquired him. His He had a child that was a, in need of some significant, um, you know, medical care in the, at the University of Chicago hospitals and was like really, really sick. And that, you know, that weighs on you. That's the stuff that you and I can go and do and we can kind of put off to the side because of what we do. We're not professional athletes that are on TV that are then being, you know, crucified by fans who don't understand that they might have a personal thing going on. So I really liked your riff on that, Chris. I think that was really, really well said. 
yeah and um, if it, yeah it, to summarize like you know it does actually connect to the trade deadline like thinking just thinking about these players as as humans and not just like just yeah i mean that's a nice thing to consider but also like for the game that we play like just considering other factors that may explain a, a player's performance um so yeah I, I i think that's super important especially in baseball because it is such a statistical game you know sometimes people just plug in you know projections or you know just go by the the numbers but there there is that element that can't be quantified and that we should be considering for sure chris i wanted to ask you too while i have you are there any players that are interesting to you uh this week that you're looking to pick up on any of your rosters yeah, so I, I'm looking at a few players. Um, uh, I'm going to give you two pitchers or two hitters and two pitchers here. Starting with the hitters, um, I always like like those who have listened to the show know that I like to do. I like to pull up the last 14 days leaderboard for hitters and, and look at guys who maybe are showing an uptick in their skills. And I really do find that there's something predictive about that. I've been very successful personally just using that and and being ahead on guys who. Uh, are showing an uptick in skills. And one guy I'm looking at is Will Benson. Um, I don't have the, the roster ship percentages in front of me, but I, I'd assume in 12 team leagues, he's, he's pretty available. And, um, I mean, while Benson is, uh, there's two factors working against him, right? He's a left-handed hitter who really doesn't play against lefties. Uh, and he's also hitting near the bottom of the Reds lineup. Uh, but the skills that he's showing are really encouraging. And I, I think even from a dynasty perspective, this makes me think that he's someone to go out and target um, as he continues to develop. Over the past 14 days, uh, Benson, while the strikeout rate is high at 37.8, we got to look a little deeper, right? His contact rate is 81%, which is like borderline, uh, is definitely above average. Uh, uh, not quite elite, but definitely above average. His Plate discipline, a 20, uh, 20% O swing percentage, uh, 7.5% swinging strike. I mean, those are really, really good numbers. And not only that, he is making great quality of contact over the past 14 days, 17% barrel rate, 61% hard hit rate. Now, is it going to continue at that level? No, but just the fact that he is showing, um, these skills, even in the shorter time frame, I think is really encouraging. For the rest of the season, but more so for his future. I, I think there's a, a real player there. I mean, remember, he was a first round pick. Uh, he showed, you know, some, some good skills in the minors last year. And then the Reds went out and acquired him. I mean, he's a player, especially in Cincinnati, in that ballpark, I think is someone that dynasty players should be looking at. Uh, and, and also for this year as well, uh, in, in redraft leagues, rather. So the other player I was looking at is uh, another young player, Michael Garcia. And he's showing some really interesting skills over the past 14 days. Uh, guy doesn't strike out, man. I mean, he's got uh, 11% strikeout rate, 89% contact rate, 4.9% swinging strike rate. Those are elite. I mean, that that is those are some elite numbers there. He's not chasing outside of the zone, 25% O-swing. His hard hit rate, 50%. Barrel rate over the past two weeks. 40%. Again, not going to continue. Excuse me. I'm looking at the wrong player. He does not have a 40% barrel rate. That was the person below him. Um, all right. 7% barrel rate. A little different, but he is still, <laughs> <laughs> he's still striking the ball really well with a 51% hard hit rate. 
I really like Michael Garcia, especially because he is uh, he's stealing bases. He's making contact. He's making good quality of contact. He is someone that you should be looking to pick up if he's available. And another guy who I think from a dynasty perspective is uh, is on the rise. Any thoughts on those two guys? Yeah, those are guys that I think can help you in redraft too. I'm going back yeah. about three or four weeks when I had some injuries to my middle infield and also to my outfield. Those were guys that I picked up uh, somewhat on your recommendation as well. I mean, you've been high on Benson and Garcia going back a little ways too, just in our conversations. Um, and I think that those are guys that are definitely going to pay off. Uh, Benson definitely has a pedigree. At bats are always a question in Cincinnati with how many people they have uh, rotating through. But with India out now for a little bit, he's got a little bit of a more direct uh, pathway to playing time. I'm not 100% sure why they keep playing Nick Senzel as much as they do, but they do. Uh, long story short, I think both of those guys are are definitely worthwhile pickups. All right. So moving on to the pitchers. You're going to love this name. Nick Pavetta, man who has you good know, God, a, a good God. For, <laughs> what's that? Good God. Yeah. Every, we're you're back, gonna, baby. You're, you're going to alienate all of our listeners. Well, listen to this, man. Over the past 24 innings, all right, and some of those have been as uh, a bulk reliever, and some of those have been as a starter. But Nick Pavetta's found something, man. And, and I know, like, people have been dreaming on Pavetta for years. Like, I was all in on him when he was back on the Phillies, and I think it was his second year. It looked like he was the most obvious breakout in the world. It just has never really happened. But I don't know. They found something with him over the past 24 innings. He's got a 1.77 Sierra, um, a 43% strikeout rate, and a 5... So here's the big number. The 5% walk rate. That's always been Pavetta's problem. Um, and again, small sample, but the fact that he is showing these skills, um, I mean, I think Boston's going to... They have to roll with him, right? Especially they're in the middle uh, of a playoff chase here for the wild card. Um, I mean, the way he's pitching, I, I imagine that he's just going to be an every fifth day starter for them uh, moving forward. And the stuff plus, you know, people are mixed on whether on how much they lean on those numbers. But that's elite at 124 His location plus 108, which is well above average. Again, that has been Pavetta's problem over the course of his career has been his command in the walk rate. And those all seem to be in line right now. If Pavetta's available. Uh, which I imagine he is in a lot of 12-teamers. He's a guy I think you have to go get, uh, given the recent skills. Um, so I know, I know, it's Pavetta. But what do you think, Mike? Any any thoughts on that before we uh, move on to the next segment? Did you, ever see the, did you ever see the movie New Jack City? I have not. You're kidding. I have not, no. Oh, I, then you're not I'm the guy that, like, I don't know, I, I watch movies, but, like, I feel like, People ask me, oh, you, you know, you've seen this movie, right? You've seen that movie. And like, I'm always like, nah, <laughs> I don't know. So tell me about New Jack City. Okay. So the, my reference was going to be to Chris Rock had a big character in that movie named Pookie, who uh, goes from the mailroom and, and starts to elevate himself into this uh, larger role in the corporation that he's part of. But he's a crack addict and he can't stop smoking crack and he keeps going back to the drug. Pavetta is that drug. Yeah, baby. If if you keep thinking that you're going to get a different result over the course of time, maybe you will. But Pavetta has teased before. To me, he's that type of guy that you can't bank on. You can try to ride the hot streak, but I don't know that it's going to continue. My fear is that he's going to get exposed in Boston now after he's had some pretty good success in the bullpen. 
they're probably going to have to use him in the rotation a little bit more at some point, right? So I'm just worried that he's going to get exposed. I think pitching out of the bullpen has been great for him. So I worry about the role a little bit. And I'm just joking about the, the thing with the, with that New Jack oh, City crack. reference. But yes. <laughs> but my, my, my point is, you know, he's the type of guy that's burned a lot of people in the past. And unless you're desperate, I don't know that I would go back to it. But you're right. The underlying statistics have all been really, really good. And there are analysts that are better than me at looking at that stuff like you. And if you say that there's something there, I think that there's that's uh, somebody that we need to consider. All right. So let me give you his next three starts. Home versus Toronto. Home versus Detroit. And away at Washington. So listen, I understand the Toronto start. You may be a little mixed on, but they probably won't have Bo Bichette. Um, so personally, at home, I'm starting him there. Home versus Detroit, of course you're starting him there. For sure. At Washington, of course you're starting him there. Uh, then it gets a little dicey. Then he plays, it looks like, uh, I can't tell if it's the Yankees or Hugh. Yeah, so he's going to probably, well, no, Yankees. What am I talking about? He's playing the Yankees. I mean, that's like, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm yeah. used to thinking the Yankees are, you know, intimidating offense. No, you're playing Nick Pavetta. I don't care if it's Yankee Stadium. You're playing him there. Then he gets the Dodgers and then Houston. So then that's a little dicey. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm rolling with him even in 12 teamers just based on, on, uh, those good matchups coming up as well. I love it. And it's great. I mean, I think that's a really, that's really good advice to get from you. And I, I'm, I'm not in a position where I really need him. So I'm going to probably sit this one out. All right. All right. We'll revisit Nick Pavetta, my personal drug of choice. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of bullpens that I think are fairly intriguing moving forward, not necessarily for you know, looking at closers, but bullpens that really added some depth. And I really liked what Atlanta did. Um, Atlanta, over the course of the last week, was able to add lefty Brad Hand from Colorado to go, also go along with Pierce Johnson, who they acquired as well. And they've added him in, into the mix that they have behind A.J. Minner and Joe Jimenez. Colin McHugh and Kirby Yates. So the Braves have a, a killer bullpen there behind Rizal Iglesias. I don't, Rizal Iglesias is not in any danger of losing the closing job, but they have several hands there that can help out should something happen to Iglesias or should he need a rest between now uh, and the playoffs. Um, one of the things that they are missing there is Tyler Matzik, which is why I think Brad Hand was a really good under sort of under the radar acquisition that they made to pair with AJ Minter as another lefty in the bullpen. And the other team that I thought was that did an interesting move, and I, I sort of I don't want to say I called it, but I had suggested it in an earlier piece for fan tracks was Paul Seawald going to Arizona. Arizona had kind of a glaring hole there at the back end of their bullpen, and I think Seawald really closes that down for them. They had tried to go through with a, a, a variety of different options, Scott McGuff for a while, Kevin Ginkle more recently, Miguel Castro had been part of that as well. Um, and also uh, Andrew Chafin, who they just traded to Milwaukee and getting back Peter Strzelicki in, in return for that. But I really like this idea of having that solid guy at the back end for them because then it bumps everyone down a spot. So I think what will happen is McGuff will get the eighth, Ginkle will get the seventh, and Castro can be more of that multi-inning weapon, which I think he will serve in a nice role for. So for those of you that might be looking at the Arizona Diamondbacks and thinking about what their bullpen is going to look like, I'm pretty certain that they got Seawall to close. Uh, on the flip side of that, there had been some conversation with some people online about 
the Mariners and what the Mariners are going to be doing with their bullpen. Now, they traded Seawald. I think a lot of people think Andres Munoz will be that guy. I think Andres Munoz will get three out of every four save chances that they have there. They also have Justin Topa and Matt Brash, who have been very, very good for Seattle moving forward, too. But I really do think that Seattle, you know, acquired Munoz and then gave him the money to become the closer. I think this has been sort of a coronation in waiting. I think Munoz will be that guy. If you were going to spend fab on it, I would do that. I also made a mistake last weekend and talked about Robert Suarez, thinking that the Padres might trade Josh Hader. So I wasted five or six fab dollars on Suarez. But I did pick up Munoz in a couple of my uh, leagues over the course of the last couple of weeks in anticipation of the Seawald move. So those are two bullpens that I kind of like moving forward in terms of what they did and in, in strengthening their team here uh, for that stretch run. Mike, I just want to quickly point out, um, uh, plug someone's work here. Uh, Grant Washburn for Pitcher List. I don't know. Did you happen to see his article on how uh, arbitration affects uh, saves? You know, I have not read it yet. It's in my queue to read, though. He's he's a brilliant person. I, I really like his work. Yeah, he's on Twitter at throwing underscore gas. G-A-S-S-E. Um, he wrote an article that I thought was really interesting. He's been on, um, the on the wire podcast. That's how I found out about him. But he talked a lot about how, like, he did a deep dive into how teams distribute saves and, uh, looked at how contract status played a role in that. Um, and whether a player was eligible for arbitration. And I mean, he did find that, you know, teams are going to gravitate more towards non arbitration players, like guys who, are pre-arb or who already have a contract. So I definitely encourage anybody to uh, go follow Grant and also go check out his article. I thought it was uh, super informative and just interesting to think about. But uh, looking at Munoz, I mean, he is signed, like you mentioned. Like they they did sign him to a deal. So that's not going to prevent him from getting saves. I, I agree. I think he gets the majority there. Um, but I, I think it's fair to expect that Topa and... Um, and Brash will will get some ancillary saves as well. Uh, so, Mike, the, we've got we got to wrap up here in a minute. Uh, I know we we both have things to do here, but we have two segments, and I'm going to have you pick which one we're going to do. Uh, so, celebrity sightings was one segment we're we're going to do, or our normal mental health minute. So, you choose. Let's what do celebrities. Let's do celebrity sightings. Yeah, today. it's a little different. A little different. Yeah. So. I want to tell you, I, I saw a really big sports star this past weekend. It was super exciting. Like, I normally don't get like super starstruck, like if I've seen like a famous person, but it was just like the surprise of it. So anyway, my wife and I actually had a uh, a night out, which is like super rare. You know, what is that? What is that? What's a night out? Yeah, no, I know. And so, OK, you, you know what I'm talking about. We actually got my mom was available to watch the kids, which was just like. It was awesome. It was our anniversary a couple of weeks ago, too. So we never had a chance to like to go celebrate. So we went to this place and it wasn't like super fancy or anything. It's kind of like a, it's in the middle of nowhere, like here in upstate New York uh, in a town called Wasaic. Um, and there was this restaurant there called The Lantern and not super fancy kind of. It's just like a more of like a trendy kind of like, I don't know, like Wasaic's kind of like an artsy hipster kind of area. Um, so this restaurant we had heard about so i go there and uh you know i'm sitting down it's actually a place where you go up and you order they don't even serve you so that's that's a whole other story but uh <laughs> but the, food, the food was was really good uh so we're sitting there i mean we're enjoying we're talking and 
you know, I'm just looking around and, you know, there was like, it, it was pretty packed. I go, I look to my left a little bit behind me and I see like two older gentlemen and then I see this guy with this like big bald head and I'm like, holy shit, Mark Messier is sitting right next to me. What oh, wow. the hell? <laughs> like, and this is like, again, a middle of nowhere. Like I would not expect Mark Messier to be sitting in this restaurant. Um, and I like, you know, being from New York, like Mark Messier is like a freaking legend over here, you know, like with the, oh, yeah. the guarantee, you know, the Stanley Cup, like, you know, we don't have much of hang our hats on in terms of like championships and hockey or basketball. So like that 94 run is still just like anybody from those teams is just like an icon, especially Messier. Oh, yeah. So, you know, so I know you're going to ask me, did I talk to him? I did not. And, and this is what I wanted to ask you. So. If you were in my situation, would you have tried to, you know, say something or maybe get a picture? Because me personally, like, I just felt like, first of all, I was a little nervous. I'll be honest. But like, I also just was like, eh. it looked like he was probably, there were, he was with a woman too that kind of looked like him. So, uh, <laughs> younger than him. So I assume it was his daughter. And oh, I'm okay. like, eh, I don't, I don't really want to bother him, you know? Um, and it was funny too, cause, it looked like there was something left behind at the table. It looked like, uh, like some kind of like half can or like blanket or something that was at the table when they, when they got up and left. So I see it sitting there and I'm like, Oh, Oh shit. Like it looks like they left it. So here I am. I'm like thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be the one, the, the one that gives Mark Messier his blanket back. So I go and the waiter goes, Oh, they, they were already outside the door and the waiter goes, Oh, I, I can go give it to him. I'm like, Nah, man, I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> I'm giving this to him. So I run out, and he had already like walked away. And I, I asked what I assume was his daughter. She's like, "Oh no, that's not even ours. Someone before, uh, before we were here left it there." So I was like, Damn, that was my opportunity. Um, but Mike, would you have talked to him? Like, do you, would would you have like said, "Hey, Mark, you know, thank you for the memories," or wh- what would you have done? Yes, I would have definitely said hello. You would have. And, yes, and 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 I. Well, see, I'm older than you, so I'm a little more. You know, I have a little bit less time to waste in my life, and so if I want to say something to somebody, I would say something to them. And I think what you would have said was probably, "Hey, thanks for these great memories that I have from when I was a kid and bringing us a championship," and just left it at that. You know, I obviously people have a right, I think, you know, no matter who they are, to be able to have a meal in peace with their family or whoever they might be around. And I, I think I would have uh, approached that. I can tell you that I have a similar story in a weird way. Um, six years ago, I have a group of three other guys um, that I travel to d- a different baseball stadium like every three or four years. We just pick a different city and we go. And we chose Pittsburgh one year. We wanted to go to PNC really badly. Uh, it's Father's Day weekend. So my wife said, yes, you can go, but we want you to be back on Father's Day. So I left on Thursday, came back on Sunday morning, five o'clock in the morning, Eastern time. Um, I'm in the Pittsburgh airport and it's jam packed with Cub fans. So the Cubs were playing Pittsburgh. Arietta started for the Cubs that night. Pittsburgh is great, a great town, a very underrated town, and the park is I, I, probably the best park I've ever been to. That's I what just, everybody I, says. I got. I get loved out there. it. I just yeah. loved it. I loved it. So maybe if you get out there, I'll meet you. So get this. So I'm in the I'm in the the security line at five o'clock in the morning. I'm like, what the hell is this? There should not be a security line on Sunday morning. And I see this guy, similar to what you did, bald head, a foot taller than anybody that's around him in line. And I look a little closer, and it's John Smoltz. And 
Smoltz is he called the game the night before and was mm-hmm. leaving to go home to Atlanta to see his family and Father's Day and whatever. And it's five o'clock in the morning. I've got my phone in my hand. The security line is crazy, but he's going to pass it about the same point that I am in the big L shaped maze that we're going through. And I said, you know what? To hell with it. When am I ever going to get a chance to talk to a Hall of Famer again? So I stopped and I said, hey, John, I just want to let you know I'm a huge fan. I love watching the postseason all the years for those Braves. And he was really taken aback because he's not used to having a short fat guy probably talk to him at five o'clock in the morning. And he's like, oh, hey, thanks a lot for that, man. I go. Yeah, you know, and I, you had a 15 and four record in the playoffs. It was pretty sweet. And I'm like, I totally like had a Chris Farley, Paul McCartney SNL moment, you know, where I'm like quoting stats that maybe he doesn't even know. And he laughed and I said, Hey, can I just get a quick picture with you? Like I didn't ask him for an autograph or anything like that. I took that picture with him. Of course, I send it to like 30 people right away. I'm like, look who I found in the airport. Nobody knows who he is. You know, it's like my, well, my dad and my brother did, but like nobody else really knew who it was. Right. So I had to explain it. But in that moment, I thought, you know, I, I I'm not going to have that. I'll, I'll kick myself if I don't at least say something. And and as a fan, I think if I'm a, if I were a player, which I'm not, and I had a fan approach me and say, "Hey, thanks for creating this great memory for me," but wasn't like, "Here, sign these 20 things," mm-hmm. or "Hey, can we call my mom and dad together?" or something like that. That's out of line. I right. Think so saying, there's like a easy way to go about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like like, a, yeah. Yeah. I got just, you. Yeah. Thank you. Know. Thanks for everything that you've done. You know. Like you just created a lot of memories for me. So that. I probably would have, but I'm also a lot older than you. So like, I don't have, I don't have any pride and I don't have any shame, you know, uh-huh. as we, as we know. All right. Yeah. Okay. Something to think about. I, I just, it was a lot to process in the moment. Like, it, seriously, like I was so just taken aback. I, I don't know. Um, more importantly, but, uh, Chris, more importantly, yeah. Chris, how long has Ingrid been putting up with your tomfoolery and ballyhoo and shenanigans? Uh, well, this is 14 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we've been married for 14 and we started dating when, uh, we were 16. So 20 years that we've been together and, uh, married for 14. She is getting a special place. She is a saint. She's absolutely a saint. Um, you know, but the thing talking about Ingrid, I, in that moment, I'm like, babe, that's Mark freaking Messier behind us right now. She's like, no, who's that? I'm like, what? Uh What are you talking about? Uh-huh. Uh huh. So that was, uh, you know, like I still love her, but she a little disappointing there, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, but I I like your advice. I I like how you kind of differentiate between like the way you can do things, like you you can be nice and respectful and and be kind of like a sleazy fan. There was actually the, so uh, this is another story that we could get into uh, another time. But uh, I used to go to church with Bernie Williams, um, and uh. There was, so he would play, you know how he plays the guitar, right? He's right, right. Now that was what I was going to ask. I was going to say, did he play the guitar? Yeah, the yeah. So yeah. he played in a church band. And, uh, you know, there were, from time to time, like people would show up and I guess word got out that Bernie Williams went to that church and, you know, there'd be like, I mean, there were kids at least, but still like they would show up with like Bernie, like jerseys on and, and ask him to autograph stuff at church, you know? So mm-hmm. it was like. Uh, that's a little bit, you know, even though they're kids, it's like, all right, it's probably not the place to do it. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that was my excitement. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to maybe going forward. If I'm in that situation, I'll have a better plan. Well, happy anniversary to you guys Thank again. You, and, and I, and that's, uh, the commitment that you guys have to each other is huge. I mean, and we all know that those of us who know, you know, that Ingrid is getting a special place in heaven. 
for putting up with your bullshit for oh, how many dude. years, you know, that she's been doing this. So my anniversary is actually in about two weeks, too. It'll be 23 years that we've been married and uh, 29 years together. Wow. You talk about someone who's put up with a lot of bullshit. I was going to say, man, like, yeah, that that's a whole nother level. Bro. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's thankful that my biggest advice right now is doing podcasts with you and writing uh, blogs on the weekend. You know, the, right. there used to be some pretty nasty habits there that were fairly reprehensible. So we'll just leave it at that. We'll, we'll talk about that in another episode. But um, Chris, wanted to thank you for, for jumping on here with us again. And um we are the Fantasy Baseball Beat. Mike Carter here at MDRC0508. Torres at Torres Takes. Torres is the hostess with the mostest. I love working with him on these things. And I, every once in a while, I get an opportunity to kind of do the hosting. We kind of try to alternate to keep it interesting for you guys that are listening. Thank you so much for those of you who are listening. If you can give us a, rain, a rating on wherever you get your podcast, we would most appreciate that. That's how we're able to be able to reach out and get more listeners. I also want to thank... Scott Merkin as well for his time today. Scott's one of my favorite people in, in, in this industry. And uh, interestingly enough, being a White Sox fan and having followed him for the last 20 years that he's been writing for MLB.com, having people like that come on, we never take it for granted. And we're really, really grateful for their, their time and for the opportunity to be able to ask them a few questions on a weekly basis. For this week, end of the trade deadline, go out there and get your lineup set. Fab runs this weekend. We don't quit. We keep going. For Chris Torres, I'm Mike Carter. You've been listening to the Fantasy Baseball Beat, and we will see you next week. Thank you.